Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Well, we have been walking through the Apostles' Creed. I think this is our 10th sermon on it, something like that. I'm a little behind on getting them to the podcast. I apologize for that. I need to do that. If you've missed some, they're usually available online, but they're not all there yet, so we've got to get that taken care of. Today, we've made it all the way down to the one that I've probably been asked the most questions about outside of he descended to hell. That one was a lot of questions. Uh, this one is, I believe in the Catholic Church. Um, and so a lot of people freak out about Catholic because um, they're like, I grew up Catholic and this is nothing like the Catholic Church. Or they think, uh, you know, are they trying to pull a fast one on me and I really am still part of the Catholic Church or however that works. So we're going to take a look at that, the Catholic Church and the communion of saints. We're going to combine those because they're really not two separate ideas. They're really the same kind of idea expounded together. So uh, we're going to take a look at those. But before we do, we're going to stand in a moment and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, If you are new to church world, if you're not a follower of Christ, you can stand and just uh, not say anything. Uh, You can stand so you don't look like you stick out or anything. Um, But uh, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed together, those who are followers of Christ. And the reason we've been going through this is because These are the core beliefs of the Christian faith, of the Orthodox Christian faith. I'm not preaching the creed, I'm preaching the scriptures. I'm using the creed as a way to get us through some systematic theology that the scriptures teach us. And so again today, we're going to go to a couple of passages of scripture, and we're going to take a look at these concepts as they're taught to us in scripture. Um, And each week when we stand and we recite the creed together, We are affirming our allegiance to Jesus. We're affirming our belief in these things. Uh, But we are also renouncing and rejecting uh, popular notions of our culture. And today we're going to reject something that you're going to think, huh, that's okay to reject. We're going to reject independence today. Our culture teaches this fierce, rugged independence that you can do it alone. And this creed, every time you've stood up and said this, says something vastly different. It says you can't do it all. You can't do it alone. You're not smart enough. You're not good enough on your own. That you're designed for community. And so we're going to be talking about that today as we look at the church, as we look at the communion of saints. And we want to reject this fierce, rugged independence that is foisted on us, um, I think, oftentimes by Satan. Uh, to keep us apart and keep us away from other people. So if you would stand and say these words loud and proud with me here in a bit. Go ahead, Kyle. I believe...
Please be seated. And those who had it memorized, you were right on top of it. That was awesome. So, right. the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, something that you just now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you said the creed, you say you believe in those things. And so I want to spend a little bit of time teaching on what those things are. And then I'm going to spend a lot of time unpacking how to do it. And are we doing it? And are you doing it? Am I doing it? All right, so here we go. You can see in the creed that it starts out by saying, I believe in God the Father. Then it goes to Jesus the Son. Then it goes to the Holy Spirit. And it is this triune uh, structuring of the creed that we see. And one of the things that we affirm as Christians, even though we don't understand it, I've spent lots of money at seminary. I've spent lots of money at a Christian university. I sat under some of the best minds in biblical studies and in theology, and none of them could explain to me exactly how the Trinity works. At the end of the day, they all said, it's a mystery. It's something that we can't understand. But the scriptures do show us that God is one, He is one being, but exists in three persons. And at the core of God is relationship. God exists in relationship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist in relationship. There has been a relationship eternity past. There's been a being, God, in relationship for eternity. And when God created us, he didn't need anything. It's not like he was bored. It's not like he needed some entertainment, though I think we probably are quite entertaining. I don't think he needed any heartbreak, though I think we are quite heartbreaking. I don't think he needed any problems. I don't need, he did not lack anything. But for some reason, God created us. And when he created us, he created Adam, the scriptures teach us, he created Adam, and Adam was given this task to name all the animals, right? And he walked around, and you can tell that Adam was, was feeling pretty good about the task early on because he uses words like hippopotamus and rhinoceros and giraffe. And then you can see that he starts to lose steam because he starts saying dog, cat, mouse. I mean, you know, it's like, ugh, serious? I had to write those big, long, three, four-syllable words down, and now I got thousands more to go. And he starts to lose steam. And I think the whole point of the exercise wasn't to give animals names, but for Adam at the end of naming thousands upon thousands upon thousands of animals, for him him at the end of the day to go, they all had friends. I'm by myself. And right after that, God puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib out of him. Uh, He creates Eve. And Adam goes, wow, she's hot, (laughs) which is the Hebrew. I mean, that's what it says in Hebrew. It says, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But it was kind of like, wow, she's good looking. You did a great job, God. And right from the beginning, we see we are created for relationship. And the most intimate of those relationships we are created for is marriage. How many of you are married? Anybody? How many of you have been married? Marriage is really, really fun and really, really hard? Yeah, it's both. Now, it was supposed to be really, really fun without the really, really hard part. And Adam and Eve 
messed it up for us all. So when we all get to heaven, we can give a stern little talk to them. And they will quickly say, you know what? Had you been in our shoes, you'd have done the same thing. Because I've got the inside track on how you lived your life, and you're kind of a knucklehead, right? They'll say that we would have messed it up too. And they messed it up, and part of the curse that God pronounced was this, this animosity between men and women. And so it even haunts us today. Anybody heard any discussions about gender gaps recently in the news? Nobody's heard any of that? I've been hearing some of that, and I don't even pay attention to the news much. They've been talking about all these gender issues, gender gaps, and guess what? The scriptures, the Christians, we have answers for why this happens. We also have answers on how to get along better between the genders. Now, that's not the whole point of my talk, but it's a part of it. Another thing that happens in Genesis chapter 11 is we get the Tower of Babel. And when I was a little kid, it was one of my favorite stories because I was always interested in towers. And the flanaglaf was really cool because they got this big tower out, right? And they had these little people and they were making this tower. And then we found out why there's people that talk funny in the world, right? And I sat through two years of Spanish, and all I can say is hola, right? (laughs) Um, We have all these different languages in the world. And Genesis 11 tells us why there's all these different languages in the world. But one of the things that we did, or humanity did in Genesis 11, was they defied God. In Genesis 11, it says, let's make a tower and make a name for ourselves. Let's build it up to heaven so that God will see us. And then it says, and God peered down and he said, hey, let's go down and look at what the little humans are making. And God scrambled the languages because we weren't listening. We hadn't fulfilled the reason we were created was to fill the whole earth and to rule and reign over the entire earth. We had all stayed put. In one place. And we had really what one of the issues that was going on was there was humanity was creating its own religion. The tower that was being built was actually an ancient temple. And they were seeking a way for the God to come down and interact with us. And God said, No, nah, I'm not gonna have any of that. And he scattered the languages. And so the scriptures, the Christian teaching, we have a better understanding and a better description of why nationalism and racism happens in the world than any other religion, than any other worldview. We understand why racism and nationalism are things. Has anybody heard anything in the news lately about racism? About nationalism? Well, God didn't create the world that way. It's sin. If you are a racist, you are a sinner. If you are a nationalist, you are a sinner. If you are in conflict with your wife, it's because you're a sinner. If you're in conflict with your husband, it's because you're a sinner. If you're in conflict with another human, it's because you're both sinners. God didn't design it this way. This was not his intention. It was us that ruined it. And we continue to ruin it on a regular basis, right? Seems like the more of us there is, the more problems there are. Now, 
What's the solution for this? God wants us all in relationship with one another. He wants to restore our relationship with him, and that's the first part of the creed, the vertical relationship with God. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's the vertical relationship, and God wants us to have that restored with him, and he does that through the work of Jesus. And now he wants our relationships, the horizontal, restored. That's what he's created us for. He wants us in relationship with one another. His idea for doing this is called the church. That's his idea. It's his plan. It's his scheme. If you got a problem with it, you got a problem with his bride. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Because that's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament for the followers of God, the followers of Jesus, the bride of Christ. You ever made fun of another guy's bride? Usually doesn't go well, unless he started it, but then even jumping on can be dangerous, right? You think you should make fun of God's bride? Think you should speak ill of God's bride? Think you should sit up and pay attention when we talk about God's bride? The scriptures say that you and I, those of us who have placed our faith, those of us who are following Jesus Christ, are the bride of Christ. Now, I'm not going to go to a bunch of scriptures that show this. But one of the questions that Jesus was confronted when he was here on earth was, how do we fulfill the law and the prophets? How do we fulfill the law and the prophets? How are we to be God's people? How do we, maybe in our vernacular, how do we all get along? (laughs) And Jesus had an answer for them. It was Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. If you have your Bible, grab it. These are verses that you should highlight, underline. Maybe you'll get there and go, wow, I I already underlined this. How cool is that? (coughs) Hopefully you're reading your scriptures outside of Sunday mornings. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. says this, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, so his teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a question, of all the commandments, which is the most important? You ever had this discussion with your kids, right? Okay, you give us a lot of rules, but like, which are the most important rules, right? Or at school, they boil down. Isn't there something happening this week with school? Yeah, sorry about that, kids. Um, and teachers. <laughs> teachers are probably more burned, boom, bummed out than the kids. Parents are all excited. Yay! Um, what is the most important command? What does Jesus say? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That is a very Jewish answer. Sounds like this. It's the Shema, which means the, 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 it's, it's the here, O Israel. Shema Israel, Adonai Eroheinu, Adonai Echad. Jesus answered this, and it is the ancient answer that Jews would give when they were asked, what is the most important command? And then Jesus says this. The second is this. With a little authority, with a little pep in his step, he says, I'm going to add something to this. And he says, there is no 
or excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, it's interesting. If you have a Bible that has footnotes in it, you'll probably see that Jesus is quoting two different passages of Scripture. These are not new laws. These had already been given to the Jewish people. They already knew these things. They sat around, fussed, fought, debated these things. And Jesus says, here's the way to fulfill the law and the prophets. Love God, love other people. Why are we here every week? I mean, if that's all it boils down to, we probably don't need an hour-long pep rally each week, do we? If that's all this is, love God, love people, why do we need the pep talks each Sunday? Or is that why we're here? Are we really here for the pep talk? Is there something else we're here for? Now, it's interesting. Jesus says that this is the core, the crux of following God, the commands. And then he institutes the church. And Jesus' idea is the church is the place that's going to love God with its whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's going to love one another. It was his idea. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And this was Christ's, this was his baby, his brainchild, his idea. Are we doing what he imagined? Now, before I start answering that, Revelation chapter 7 has this cool description of kind of the culmination of what all this is heading towards. Revelation chapter 7, as soon as I talk about the book of Revelation, everybody's like, ooh, excitement plagues and bulls and all this kind of stuff. We're going to talk about the Jehovah Witnesses, 144,000 sealed. Actually, I know. But that's right at the beginning of this passage, isn't it? Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. More than 50. It's a big group. And where are they from? From every nation. If you're a racist, that's bad news. If you're a nationalist, that's bad news. From every tribe, from every people, and every language. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. (laughs) That's the picture of what it's going to be like one day in heaven. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be there. God's reversing the curse. God's reversing the curse of Genesis 11. God's reversing the curse of Genesis 3. God is in the process of bringing about right relationship between us and him and us and one another. Have you ever thought you might be a minority in heaven? You see, the vast majority of people who are following Jesus Christ aren't white in this world. The vast majority in this world who are following Jesus Christ today, now, speak a language other than English. The vast majority, I mean, it's not even close 
The amount of people who are following Jesus Christ today, now, in church, loving one another, loving God, the vast majority are not white and don't speak English. And if you have a problem with that, if you have a second guess of that, guess who Jesus is going to sit next to you at his feast? You're just going to have to grin and nod a lot, right? Because racism and nationalism is not part of the program of God. If it's in our hearts, and by the way, we would all be wise to search our hearts on these things. Do not deceive you. You lie to yourself better than anyone else lies to you. And if you or I think we are not a racist, we've got to be kidding ourselves. All right. Soapbox over. This picture of heaven that's going to happen, this will happen for those who follow Christ. This is going to happen. It's prophecy. This is in the future. How do we get there? How do we start that now? Let me show you a definition of the church. It's by Jonathan Lehman. And it's so interesting what he says. He says, uh, if you could go to the definition of church for me there, Kyle. He says this, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Did you catch that? I'm not even seeing any nodding. You guys are all worried that I'm going to run out of time, aren't you? (laughs) I've ran out of time all, like every week. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee. That's the word that you guys are all struggling with. Wait, oversee? Oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ. Membership in what? In Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. What are the gospel ordinances? Well, in a few minutes, we're going to do one. It's called baptism. You might have come out of a tradition that calls them sacraments. The other one is communion. And we did that. We're doing both today. And the third one, gospel preaching. Hopefully this is the gospel and hopefully I'm preaching, right? We're doing those things today. Sounds like we're a local church. But the first part, maybe we're not doing that very well. Affirm and oversee one another. What would that look like? See, it's interesting. The New Testament gives us 59 one another's. He doesn't leave us alone to figure this out. God knows that Steve Weinkoop is a little slow and needs help, needs assistance, needs things spelled out. And even after he's read them for the last 20-some, 30-some, 40-some years, he still reads them and goes, oh, yeah. And my guess is you're like me. So let me read to you the 59 one another's, and I'll probably stop and make comments about some of them because they're really good. But listen to this. Love one another. Serve one another. I'm not going to number them all because I don't have enough fingers. 
Serve one another. Accept one another. Strengthen one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. These are all from the Bible. Care for one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Commit to one another. Build trust with one another. Quick question. How do you build trust with somebody? (laughs) You married? Have you built trust with that person? How did you build trust with them? Well, part of building trust is that you got to be close enough to them to betray them, right? You build trust because you keep earning their trust and they keep earning your trust. You keep, you keep up with one another. You, you don't betray one another. You don't let each other down. And by the way, in order to trust one another, you have to spend enough time with somebody for them to become trustworthy, don't you? That doesn't sound like something that can be accomplished in a room this large for an hour on Sundays. All right. Be devoted to one another. Be patient with one another. Anybody ever have a problem with that one? Be interested in one another. Yes, that's in the Bible. Be interested in one another. Be accountable to one another. Confess to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Do not pass judgment on one another. Do not slander one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. It also says with a kiss, but we can skip that part. Admonish one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Meet with one another. Wow, coffee meetings are in the Bible. Agree, going to lunch. Agree with one another. Be concerned for one another. Be humbled to one another in love. Be compassionate to one another. How could you possibly be compassionate to somebody if you don't know what's going on in their life? You have to know somebody in order to be compassionate. You have to know their story, their history. You have to know what they've been through. You know, to know people, you have to create relationship. You have to have empathy. Relationship creates empathy and compassion. All right, let's skip. Do not anger one another. I'm probably doing that to some of you right now. Do not lie to one another. Do not grumble to one another. Give preference to one another. Be at peace with one another. Be of the same mind to one another. Comfort one another. Be kind to one another. Live in peace with one another. Carry one another's burdens. It's quite the list. It's very descript. You know, this past week, I thought it was interesting because I was listening to a podcast and they talked about these flipped classrooms. And it's something that educators are starting to try to do. And what they do is instead of having a talking head talk at the students where students are busy doodling on paper and they are, you know, we used to do spitballs in class. Anybody ever do spitballs in class? Kids, don't do spitballs in class because that's a sin. Bible says so. (laughs) Anyways, I'm a pastor. I got to watch what I say. Um, the teacher would stand up there and none of us are paying attention and none of us could care less. You ever been there at that school in that class? Anybody? Have you been the teacher in that class? The flipped classroom, what they're doing is they are, instead of assigning homework where kids go home and work math problems that exasperate them and their parents, instead, 
the kids watch a lecture on a video for 5, 10, 15 minutes that explains the concept. And then they come back to school the next day and they work the problems together with the teacher. Because the teacher should know it, right? The preacher at home doesn't need to know algebra. I've got a t-shirt that says, made it through another day without using algebra, right? Because I don't want to use algebra. But my kids come home with homework that's algebra. And thank God for Google. Otherwise, I wouldn't have any help for them. Because I got a bad grade in algebra. What if we were to flip church? What instead of for an hour on Sundays, you sat here and you looked at me and, you know, nod off and do all the things that we do at church? Because I've, before I was a pastor, I was a person, right? And I sat in church services and I fell asleep and I doodled and I did the whole nine yards. And there were times I'm like, oh my gosh, I know where he's going before he doesn't. Then he doesn't get there. And you're like, he didn't even know where he's going, but I knew where he's going. You've been there. You've done that. What if we were to flip it? And instead of you having to put up with me for 30, 40 minutes, you got to watch a video for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then when we got together on Sundays, we practiced the one another's. We circled up and we prayed for one another because that's one of the one another's. We forgave each other because, you know, we go, man, I'm sideways with this person. And Steve's talk that I watched on Monday night was about forgiving people. And I feel convicted. I've been praying about it all week long and I need to go talk to so-and-so at church on Sunday when they give us that time. It'd be a lot easier to skip church, wouldn't it? Because we'd be all up in each other's business. But we'd be practicing the one another's. And you'll think, well, then what would he do? He only works one day a week. (laughs) What would he do then? Because then we would be doing all the work on Sundays too. You know what? I am so tempted to flip church next Sunday. I am so tempted. Because I wonder if we're church. I wonder if we are doing this. I wonder. All right, real quick, because the water's getting cold. (laughs) Running it through our quick matrix, right? Because we've been doing the matrix each week. Symmetry, clarity, community, council. I didn't leave enough time for this, so let me go through this really quickly. Symmetry. How do we become well-rounded Christians, understanding that there is a holy Catholic church, which, by the way, I didn't even talk about Catholic, and some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, he left that out. Catholic is a Greek word that just means universal. Universal Church. There are Raider fans who are part of the body of Christ. I've met them. I I tried to kick them out of church. They kept coming every week. The Ho Shavers, anybody know those people? They kept coming. They're Raider fans. They sent me hate stuff in the mail about Raiders, right? Like, you people, but I love you as a brother in Christ, but you're totally wrong about your loyalty to the team, right? It irritated me. There are people in Yuma who are followers of Jesus, They're on the team, right? On Friday night when we play them, they're not on the team. But on Sunday morning, they're on the team, right? There are people that the the universal church transcends all that stuff. And you can go to every country and every language and every tribe, and eventually one person from every one of those groups is going to be part of the team. Okay, that's why I didn't like Tim Tebow. 
because like he was nice to the opponenting team. And then I felt bad for hating the Raiders. You know, I'm like, some of those guys even know Jesus. I can't hate them. That's terrible. All right. How do we become well-rounded Christians believing in the Holy Catholic Church? Well, if you know everyone, then you don't know anyone. That's where I'm going to start. If you know everyone, then you don't know anyone. How did Jesus do this? When he showed up in a body, finite body, limited by his physical body, he couldn't be everywhere all the time, hanging out with everybody. How did Jesus do it? He picked 12. And then he excluded nine of them for lots of the cool things he did, like the transfiguration. He took three. Jesus, when he was on earth, had a click. (laughs) He had 12. And inside that, he had three. And he invested, the scriptures tell us, three years in these people walking around ancient Israel. Teaching. You do this. You do that. Help me with this. What do you think? Who do people say? Walking around. That's what Jesus did for three years with 12 people. And inside of that 12, there were three. Do you have three? Do you have three people that you are doing life with? That they know your hopes, your fears, your dreams, and your history. Do you have three people that know those things about you? And they have permission when they go, man, you know, selling that and doing this, don't think that lines up with getting you to what you're hoping for. Selling that, doing this, I don't think that's lining up with what you are aspiring to be. That sounds like you're acting out of fear. Do you have anybody in your life that you have given permission? I'm not talking about accountants here. I'm not talking about professionals we pay. Do you have people in your life, friends, who can come and say difficult things to you? They know your hopes, your fears, your dreams, your history. Who knows where you're coming from? Who knows what you're struggling with? Who knows what you're hoping for? Who knows what you're dreaming about? Does anybody know that? Is there anyone in here? Can you look around and go, yep, they know me. They know that. If you don't, you're tempting me to flip church so we can spend time knowing that about one another. I'm not saying everybody here. How many did Jesus have? Three. And he was God in the flesh. He had three. I'm an introvert. Last thing I want to do is know 50 people. Okay? I've got my two, three people, and I'm good. And I look at Jesus and go, yay, he had 12. He was God in the flesh. He could do that. I can't do 12. I can do three. Clarity. Uh, This is just super quick. God has called you to himself. And in calling you to himself, he has called you to community to be a blessing and to receive the blessing from others. All right? That's what he's called you to. To be a blessing and to receive a blessing from other people. That's us here. You're supposed to be a blessing to these folks here and you're supposed to receive blessing from these folks here. All right, moving on. Community. This is something that I regularly say to myself. And I have been saying it for 15 years as the pastor of this church. I cannot do it all. I cannot have it all. 
Maybe you need to say that with me. I cannot do it all. I cannot have it all. You see, I am a finite being. I cannot do it all. In fact, have you looked at job descriptions for companies, churches? Jesus wouldn't be able to fulfill these job descriptions half the time, right? Because our expectations are so high on people, on ourselves. And then we kid ourselves that we can have it all. And in the end, we're cheating something somewhere. You see, you are intentionally created for community. You are intentionally created to develop deep, meaningful relationships with one another here. All right. So again, I ask, do you have somebody that you are being a blessing to in their lives and they are, you are receiving blessing from them? Finally, counsel. And I know I've gone over and I apologize. And I've got the mic. Counsel, I said this earlier. No one lies to you like you lie to you. No one lies to you like you lie to you. So the remedy for this, Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Or Proverbs 24, 6. For by wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in abundance of counselors, there is victory. You see, one thing I know about myself is when I look back at my 20-year-old self, I think, boy, that guy was an idiot, right? Because some of the decisions and things I did. And then I got to 30 years old, but now I'm 48 years old. I look back at my 30-year-old self and I go, that guy was still an idiot. You know, now I'm 48. I look back at my 40-year-old self and I go, that guy was an idiot too, because this 48-year-old guy, he's got it going on. He has figured it out. But guess what? I'm guessing when I'm 60, I'll look back at my 50-year-old self and go, that guy was a moron. Do you ever do that? And those times that I look back and go, I made a good choice. That was pretty smart. I, vast majority of those times, had people around me who were smarter, older, wiser, saying, hey, idiot, don't do that. Now, they said it nicer, so I'd listen. But that's exactly what they were saying. And you can have friends who come around you and do that, or you can pay a counselor to do that for you. Counselors just do this to you. Quit being stupid, right? That's what counselors do. You can develop relationships, and people will counsel you. That's why I love a small church. That's why when Sam goes off to Fort Collins, I hope he and pray he plugs in to a smaller church where he'll get to know people of all different generations. Because when you throw a bunch of single college students together, they're not going to make the best choices. But you put a 20-year-old with a 40, 50, 60-year-old, oh my gosh. The opportunities, the wisdom. Some of you older folks feel like you've been kicked to the curb. Guess what? Get in the game. Hang out with a younger person. They scare me. Tough darts. Grab them. They will hang out with you. Do you know how I know this? Because I was once young and there were men in their 40s and 50s and 60s who took an interest in me and started hanging out with me and discipling me. And that's why I'm your pastor today. You can blame them. I will give you their addresses. And you can choose to have that kind of impact on young people today. It wasn't their job. It was their calling to do this. 
So who are your wise counselors? Who are you doing life with? Who is speaking into your life? I'm going to end with this quote. It's a great quote. Max Lucado, Lucado, you say Lucado, I say Lucado. All right. Um, Questions can make hermits out of us, driving us into hiding, yet the cave has no answers. (laughs) You've been there? Christ distributes courage through community. He dissipates doubts through fellowship. Next slide. He never deposits all knowledge in one person, but distributes pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to many. When you interlock your understanding with mine and we share our discoveries, when we mix, mingle, confess, and pray, Christ speaks. Isn't that the coolest quote? I don't care how he says his last name. That's amazing. Who are you doing life with? That little thing going around about small groups? Sign up. Or we might flip church and do them on Sunday mornings. And then you'll be wondering, what's he do with all this time? All right, Paige, we got to baptize you. So I'm super excited about this. Um, play some music. We're going to f- hurry and get to the baptistry. If you have to leave because, you know, food's more than baptisms, that's cool. Um, so give us a moment. <laughs>